Hello, I'm Laura Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's Community Cookbook Shop. Today's topic is one that, until a few months ago, I was completely unfamiliar with. It's one of the most popular spirits in the world, but really, I knew nothing about it until I saw the book by today's guest, Derek Sandhaus. We're talking about the Chinese spirit, Baijo. Derek got his first taste of Baijo when he moved to China to teach English, and he made it his mission to get to know the drink that's so ingrained in Chinese culture, but is often derided by Westerners. His latest book, Drunk in China, chronicles the spirit's past, present, and future. And it's worth pointing out that Derek got to know the drink so well that he partnered with China's oldest continually operational distillery to co-found Ming River Sichuan Baijiu. He's in conversation with Seattle travel writer and co-host of the Spilled Milk podcast, Matthew Amster Burton, and the two have a conversation that I found incredibly enlightening about the history of Baijiu, its flavor profiles, and Matthew even has his first taste of it here on the podcast. The two talked in our kitchen in November 2019. Here's Derek Sandhouse and Drunken China. Thanks for coming out. So, Derek, I wanted to ask you if you could start us off by reading the very beginning of the book, because I told my friend Becky Selingit, who's a uh, local chef and cookbook author whose books are here, and is a very adventurous eater and drinker, that I was doing this event uh, about Baijo, and uh, and she said, oh, I've tried that. I, <laughs> I wasn't sure what to think about it, was the diplomatic way she put it. And she said, what do you think of it? I said, well, actually, I've never tried it. And I've still never tried it. So I was pleased when I opened the book, see that, that the book begins with Derek's first sip. So I want to just like take us in. Okay. So the first time I drank Baijiu was Thanksgiving Day 2006. I was at a high-rise apartment in Shanghai with recently arrived English teachers and a handful of our Chinese friends celebrating the holiday for the first time with varying degrees of enthusiasm through the great U.S. institution of the potluck. Each of us had come with watery yellow beer and barely drinkable wine, but Avi, a smart-ass kid from Philly with conspicuously cool sneakers, brought something special. He handed me a suspicious green bottle with a red star on it. I turned it over in my hands, and a transparent liquid sloshed around inside. The label was a jumble of indecipherable Chinese characters. I could not yet read it. What is it? I asked him. He could have said anything. Hair tonic, rat poison, kerosene. And I would have believed him. My suspicions were not far from the mark. Give it a sniff, he told me, barely able to contain his glee. Let's state the obvious. When a grown man asks you to smell something, it's rarely done with noble intent. (laughs) But this was an odor for which I was entirely unprepared. It smelled as if someone had wrung a garbage bag of soiled gym shorts into a bucket of fish sauce, (laughs) stirred in an equal measure of Drano, rotten fruit, and blue cheese, and left it to marinate a few days. It was a smell conjured from the pits of hell. The last whiff one senses before waking up in a serial killer's rumpus room. It triggered every alarm my young brain possessed. So, of course, I tasted it. My mouth ignited. White hot flame seared every bit of tongue, lips, gum, and throat. The substance singed my esophagus and settled like a lit coal in my stomach. When I regained feeling in my face and the acid sting subsided, 
All that was left was a bitter, fruity taste and the urge to consult a war crimes tribunal. <laughs> Whatever tricks had been played on me before or since, Avi's was surely the cruelest. But from the moment I first sipped it, I was in on the joke. I passed the bottle to the next rube and perpetuated the cycle of violence. Schadenfreude is a powerful temptation, and I come from Germanic stock. All right. <laughs> Tell me about what I'm going to taste. <laughs> okay, so a confession. You yes. are not going to taste the drink that I tasted Right, I understand. There. So Baijiu is a kind of meta-category. Uh, it means white liquor in Chinese. And there's about 12 different styles of it made in different parts of the country. Some of them are easier to drink than others. I like to think that the Baijiu I'm about to pour you because I am a uh, co-founder of the brand is <laughs> quite good. What you're going to taste is something that's been fermented for a long time mm -hmm. using natural fermentation with something called chu, mm -hmm. which I is uh, the, the, the basis of most East Asian fermented foods. This style is what's called strong aroma baijiu. It comes from Sichuan. The brand is Ming River. It's 90 proof. I'm curious to know before you taste it, what do you smell in there? Definitely like like a like a fruity kind of kind of berry aroma. Mm -hmm. um, and Interesting, like <laughs> definitely like, like basement, <laughs> but not not like bad basement. You know, when I when I uh, when I was like a teenager, I my room was in the basement. I managed to talk my parents into that with a door to the outside. It was great. It smelled kind of like this. Okay, gambe, gambe. Oh, <laughs> oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I do like it. There's a lot going on in there. <laughs> okay, so this particular style of baijiu, it uses really long fermentation periods. So what happens over those long periods is you've got a lot of uh, bacteria that mm -hmm. is interacting with the alcohol and forming really fruity flavors uh, through the, the ester formation. So the strongest flavor in there is going to be an ester called ethyl hexanoate that's okay. found in pineapples in nature. So oh, yeah, pineapple is a really that. strong yeah. note in there. Um, you get very licorice taste, yep. and beneath it all is your um, basement. The kind of French cheesy, mm -hmm. camembert blue cheesy note that ties the experience together, for me at least. It's very good. I, I still kind of now want to, <laughs> want to taste the scary one. Oh, sure, sure. Right now, according to the Chinese government, they recognize 12 different liquors that are all called baijiu. So okay. this is... I think the source of much of the confusion surrounding right. the category that many people try something in a circumstance like I did where you've got someone without good intent who went to the store and bought the cheapest bottle right. and wanted to see what everyone's reaction was. And, uh, so, so kind of lumping it all under Baijiu as if, like, you know, we said, uh, like, you know, in America, there's, uh, there's a popular liquor called white liquor, and it comes in versions such as gin, vodka. Correct. Exactly. So China is about the size of continental Europe. Right. And the different regions of it developed in isolation, much as the different countries in Europe did today. So uh, you have different culinary traditions. You have different winemaking traditions. And each of them is trying to cultivate different flavors. The flavors in Sichuan, where this baijiu comes from, tend to be very bright, very explosive, lots of peppers. You've got lots of garlic and ginger. Mm -hmm. just, and this is a baijiu that's meant to be paired with right. those strong flavors. So, yeah. 
Let me take a step back. I'd like to hear more about um, what brought you to China and what what were your impressions were when you first arrived there. What really stands out in your memory? I moved to China without any really good reason. I hadn't、mm-hmm. studied the Chinese language before I moved over there.、Um, I moved over in 2006. I had just graduated from college, and my now wife, then girlfriend. Had both applied to go to grad school in Germany. We both wanted scholarships. I got the scholarship. I was rejected from the university. She got into the university. Did not get the scholarship. So we had two pieces that didn't fit together.、Uh, so we didn't know what we were going to do the next year. And we had had a friend from that we worked with who had moved to China and started teaching English. And we were, you know, feeling him out, saying like, "What do you think about this? Should should we give China a shot?" And he said, "Yeah, it's great. Just move over here.、Um, they'll give jobs to anyone."、Right. So <laughs> we we were we were anyone, and、uh, didn't have really any other qualifications. So we moved to Shanghai, became public school teachers.、Mm-hmm. We thought we'd just stay for a year.、Uh, we ended up staying in、uh, Shanghai for five years. I got into publishing.、Uh, she got into media, and then later she became a diplomat. So. We left Shanghai after five years, and we thought that was it. And、um, when she finished her training at the State Department in DC, after about a month,、uh, we went to the ceremony where they tell you where you're going to go, and they said, "Guess what? You're going to China." <laughs> <laughs> so this was a, a surprise,、um, not necessarily a good surprise at the time because we thought we were done with it. But they sent us to a very different part of China than the one that we had lived in. And I'm very glad that they did because they sent us to Chengdu, which、mm-hmm. is the capital of Sichuan Province.、Uh, that province makes about 70% of all the liquor in China. Okay. And I started meeting all of these people right after I got there. And this book, Drunk in China, it had been a joke when I was in the publishing industry、uh-huh. with me and my boss that we published books in English about Chinese history and culture. And we'd done books about movies and art and rock and roll music and different things, using basically things that people knew about outside of China as a way for them to get into China and explore that topic. And we'd come back from a very boozy lunch. Right. Where we drank a lot of baijiu one day, and we're like, "What if we do a Chinese booze book? That would be funny." So when I moved to this region, I started meeting all these people in the alcohol industry. I, they kind of came back to me. I was like, "Well, maybe it's not such a bad idea. I don't really understand this culture. I don't understand baijiu. I know that it's very popular,、mm-hmm. but I don't really like it. So why are hundreds of millions of people drinking this every single day? And I think it's really unapproachable. What do they know that I don't?" And so I kind of spent the next couple of years traveling around the country and trying to figure that out. And I'd like to believe that I have, but I don't want to spoil the ending for you. <laughs> <laughs>、um, in the book, is it 500 shots? Three hundred. Three hundred shots. That because、uh, I wanted to know, like, how did you get from that initial contact that、uh, that didn't go great to appreciating this drink enough that you wrote two books about it? Sure. So this started. I don't really think that this is a good scientific theory, right? But when I started researching this book, I was talking to a friend of mine, Tim, who was living in Shanghai, and I told him I was going to write a book about Baijiu, and he told me this idea that there was a a theory that he had heard about taste thresholds that are the point where you go from loving to hating a thing. He was saying, you know, with like beer. And coffee and things. When you're, you know, kid, you try these things. You don't like the taste of them. 
you keep drinking them, and then eventually you start liking them. So he said with beer and coffee, it's like five, ten drinks. He's like, do you know how much Baijo is? <laughs> I was like, I'm like, what? He's like, 300 drinks. <laughs> so, so uh, I started kind of live blogging my research okay. into Baijo. And I, start, I started a blog called 300 Shots at Greatness, where <laughs> I was trying to drink 300 shots to see if I would go from where I was at the start of that book to actually liking Baijo. And I'm very, very, very happy to report it did not take 300 shots. Um, <laughs> About how many did it take? Uh, I think the breakthrough came at around 60. But in retrospect, having uh, become a fan uh, and connoisseur of Baijo, I think that really what it came down to was 60 was the point in my journey where I discovered a Baijo that I actually liked. I was just going to ask you that. Yeah, it wasn't that something switched in my brain. It's that I was drinking a bunch of stuff that wasn't that great, and then I had an exceptionally well-produced Baijo. That's when it clicked. That's when it said, oh, like I, I started to see much like after you've had a very good beer and then you go back to something like right. Coors Light where <laughs> you say, oh, I see what they're trying to do mm-hmm. and failing to do right. when I drink this. And it, it gave me a much better appreciation for less good by Joe's, let's say. And okay, so, that's, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Give us a sense of like how big the market for Baijo is, because this was one of the things I found most surprising when I read the book, because you know, this was a, a drink I knew existed, had never tasted it, knew it was popular in China, but had no sense of how popular. Baijo is the most popular drink in the planet. Every year, the Chinese produce and consume about 10 billion liters of Baijo, which is more than the global production and consumption of whiskey and vodka and quite a few other things combined. Um, I think it's about four times that of uh, whiskey. Right now, you have, I think, of the most valuable spirits brands on the planet, five of the top 10 are Baijo distilleries, and that includes the top one through four. Um, I'm happy to report my distillery, uh, Lujo Laojiao, knocked out uh, Johnny Walker last year. Really? <laughs> From the four spot. <laughs> That's very cool. Yeah, so, um, I mean, let's preface all this by saying um, China's a country with an awful lot of people who live yes. there, and this is their favorite drink. But within China, uh, 99% give or take of the liquor that's consumed there is baijo. It just has this kind of importance in Chinese social life, Chinese celebration, Chinese, Chinese culture that I don't think we have anything that comes near as close to right. filling um, outside of China. So this is maybe jumping ahead, but you know, as, a, as someone who now markets Baijo abroad, mm-hmm. what do you think accounts for the fact that, uh, you know, that Chinese food and uh, you know, increasingly uh, Chinese regional food that would have been considered uh, you know, difficult or unapproachable for Americans not of Chinese descent, you know, even 10 or 15 years ago, has become increasingly popular, whereas Baijo is still relatively unknown outside of China? I think Baijo at the moment uh, trails behind Chinese food for a few very important reasons. The, 
The first and most obvious is that we have very tight liquor laws in the United States. Interesting. So you have, I don't know what it is, uh, what the most recent one, I think about 10, 15 years ago, there were about 40,000 Chinese restaurants in the United States. And the overwhelming majority of them do not have liquor licenses. Right. So they can serve things like Qingdao beer, which right. you probably see there, but uh, most of them don't serve Baijiu. Second factor that's kind of working against Baijiu in the United States is most of the immigrants from China to the United States come from uh, southeastern China, particularly uh, Guangdong and Fujian provinces, which by whatever historical accident are the only parts of China that don't drink a ton of Baijiu. Okay. <laughs> Another big factor in this is that Baijiu was kind of a like a peasant's drink. It was a folk tradition. It was something that farmers made and produced, um, similar to moonshine uh, in the U.S. up until the 1940s. Mm-hmm. And after the communist revolution, uh, the government nationalized the baijiu industry and started pr- making modernizing it, making big distilleries that could mass produce the product. So th- what we drink today and call baijiu is a relatively new thing. And it's something that for its first three decades, they existed in a time when the United States was not trading or had sure. any diplomatic relations with China. So in the United States, uh, baijiu as we know it, was not imported until the 1980s, any real number. And it's only now that <clears throat> Baijiu distilleries in China are even like considering targeting people who aren't Chinese. Right. Let's talk a little more about how this stuff is made because the process is very different from sure. any any of the other liquors that we've mentioned. And you alluded to Chu, the, the fermentation source that's that's used. What What is that and then how, how does it figure into the Baijiu making process? Okay, so chu is that kind of culture of microorganisms that I was talking about earlier. What chu is, is basically, very simply, grains that have been mixed together with water and mashed into kind of a paste, formed into a ball or a brick, and then left in a controlled environment to decompose. So what happens is, as chu's being made, it takes, I don't know, a few weeks, up to a month sometimes, it's absorbing whatever lives in the air, and it's starting to ferment naturally. Right. So it's getting uh, mold, yeast, and bacteria in that order. Every chew is kind of a reflection of the place that it's made, but it's also, once you dry it out, you can kind of stop the fermentation process but preserve the chemicals that cause it. So to make any kind of Chinese alcohol or fermented product over the last 4,000 years or so, they use chew. Um, they use it to make soy sauce, vinegar, fish sauce. Um, any any fermented East Asian food uses some variation of right. this. So, yeah, once you mix the chew together with a steamed grain, uh, as they do in most uh, Chinese alcohols, what happens is the starch in the grain is converted into sugar by the mold at the same time that the yeast in the chew is converting it into alcohol. Right. So... Whereas in the West, we you know, can do these in two separate processes where we convert the starch in a grain to a sugar. Then we you know, make a, a, a wort, like right. when you're making a beer, and add the yeast to the liquid. You're actually fermenting solid grains, and you're left with something similar to kimchi. So right. the mash in a baijo looks like a big pile of mulch. It's not a liquid. That's interesting, because like, <laughs> some of the flavors that I got from the baijo that we tasted are like... Are, 
some of those spontaneous fermentation flavors, I think sure. that, that uh, you know, that in American distilling, you're often trying to avoid. And in particular, like in American beer making, like you do not want spontaneous like wild yeasts to get into your beer unless you're making, you know, like like a Belgian style where where that's the idea. And most people who taste those for the first time, like, whoa, you know, I need to I need to like step back and think about this. Well, yeah, the, the natural fermentation and also the use of these molds and bacterias uh, impart a lot of flavors that you don't get in uh, Western winemaking. So in particular, one of the things that stands out to a lot of people who aren't used to it is the really kind of funky umami flavors. Right. And if you cook a lot of Chinese food, if you're used to the condiments, the fermented bean paste, mm -hmm. the fermented chilies, and other kitchen ingredients... These will be instantly recognizable. Maybe not as something that you're used to drinking, but right. certainly something yeah. that you're familiar and comfortable with. Most people outside of China, um, or at least outside of East Asia, don't have a ton of experience with these flavors. So they can be a little shocking uh, at first, I think. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about the different styles, some of the different styles of Baijiu. I know you said there are 12 styles, and I don't mean you have to like walk through all 12. Uh, Thank you. Um, <laughs> They've, they've done a few different iterations. Okay. Um, they had their first like naming category naming right. convention, uh, I think, in the early 50s. And they singled out five different styles, okay. but they've changed it a few times since then. Loosely, there are four major styles okay. that account for, I'd say, 99% of all the baijiu that's produced and consumed in China. And those are um, strong aroma baijiu, which is what we just tasted. It comes from Sichuan. Um, it's fermented for long periods, and usually it's fermented in mud pits nice. uh, in the ground, which is kind of unusual and fun. Uh, there's uh, Sauce Aroma Baijiu, which comes from Guizhou, which is just right next door to uh, Sichuan. And it's made in a similar way, but it's fermented in stone pits. Okay. And uh, it uses even longer periods of fermentation. And it has a very like smoky, umami flavor. And then uh, you have Light Aroma Baijiu, which is the style that I tried in uh, the first chapter. Um, and that comes mostly from uh, northern China, uh, particularly Shanxi and um, Beijing. Okay. And then you have rice aroma baijiu, which comes mostly from uh, southeastern China. Um, and it's the only one of those four that's made from rice. The other are primarily made from sorghum. Okay. And that tends to be very mild and light. And um, the flavors that you find in these different styles are going to be um, more similar to the cuisine from that region and indeed complementary. Oh, that's region. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So in the book, one, one of the things that I found that I thought was most interesting was uh, you talked about how there was, there was a crackdown on, on Baijo, that Baijo had become sort of symbolic of excess in, uh, in terms of like officials, you know, uh, banqueting um, on, on the pub, public dime and, uh, and drinking huge amounts of, of uh, expensive Baijo. And it was thought that this was uh, just how things were and would go on forever. And then something happened. Yeah, so um, one of the funny things that I documented in this book is that I think around 40 times in Chinese history, dating back to about 1000 BC, the Chinese government has forbid purchasing of alcohol in some way, um, largely because they thought people in the government were drinking too much of it. Sure. And the fact that they have to keep doing it should indicate how successful these bands have been. <laughs> right. But... Yeah, so the baijiu industry is an interesting one because in the 60s and 70s, after the modern baijiu industry was set up, 
uh, alcohol was for the most part rationed in China. Uh, it was a command economy, right? And you couldn't really buy all that much. So in the 1980s, when they went back to kind of a limited free market economy, many of these distilleries that were owned by the state produced the same products they always had and sold them for very cheap. Um, like a bottle of uh, Guizhou Maotai, the most famous Baijiu today, sold for about a dollar a bottle back then. Then, um, through the combination of increased wealth and increased demand for the best of the best Baijiu's, the price went up to by about 2011. It was, I think, selling for 350, 400 dollars for a bottle. Yes, I, um, I looked went looking for Baijiu at Wajimaya, uh, our local uh, Asian grocery, and they do have the Guizhou Mao Tai, and it was 300 dollars, I think. Yeah, so that's that's pretty normal. But another thing that was putting a lot of pressure on these prices and driving them up so much is dating back to the 1950s. The government had purchased a lot of Baijiu for their official functions, their banquets, their business meetings, and various things. And this was all well and good when it cost a dollar a bottle, but when you were buying cases of things that cost $400, right. you know, $350 a bottle, uh, people started getting angry about it. And it began being something that people within the country were targeting as an obvious, like, excessive use of state funds that could be going somewhere else, schools, hospitals, right. things like that. So uh, people were getting angry about it. And uh, the first thing that happened um, when uh, Xi Jinping became was named the new president, I think, in 2012, was that he said that the government was no longer going to banquet. That we're no longer going to spend a lot of money on food and drink. The government stopped buying Baijiu, and, but they were so important to the Baijiu industry. Within, I think, a week of them announcing this change in the law, the Baijiu industry lost about 30 to 40 percent of its value. Wow. It's <laughs> amazing. So you spent quite a bit of time in China, right? Like, yeah, uh, I lived there seven years. Seven, seven years. What changes did you notice over that time, like setting, even setting Baijiu aside? Because I think... Um, you know, in, in America, like if uh, if we haven't spent time in China or aren't from China, like we know China through its food and through headlines about, you know, trade and that sort of thing. What are some like glimpses of like how things are on the ground in China really stick out for you when you think back to your time there? Well, the things that will stick out to me are probably like the really mundane, boring things. Sure. Like people who just live in a place for a long right. time. Like when I moved there in 2006, it was very, very hard to purchase cheese. <laughs> <laughs> it's very easy to purchase cheese. Today. Okay. Um, I'd say the ease of travel mm -hmm. is, is a lot easier. The infrastructure is much more developed. I remember the first trip I took outside of Shanghai, there were instances where I would have to take a train to a bus and then pay someone money to drive me in the back of their station wagon right. somewhere. And then maybe I would get into like a motorized rickshaw of some sort. And yeah, you really had to be persistent and be willing to make a fool of yourself at certain times to, to get somewhere and to do things. Whereas today, things are much more developed. And also a big difference, I would say, are when my friend told me in 2005, 2006, yeah, just show up. You can get a job. That, that's, <laughs> right. that's not really the, the case anymore. There's, I think, far too many people who want to work there. And also, I think, because of the huge increase of foreigners living and working in China, um, the government's a little more um, tight 
in issuing uh, work permits sure. <laughs> than they used to be because uh, you know they can attract better talent than they used to. Yeah. So this question is maybe a little little more uh, for me than the general audience because I'm also a uh, travel writer and uh, uh, sure. write books about Japan. We are a couple of American Jewish guys. <laughs> um, when that writing about a, a culture a culture other than our own, like what what is your approach to making sure you're doing that in a way that represents the culture fairly and is sort of like a you know a non imperialistic approach? I guess. Well, I mean. When I look back on the great Jewish empires of the past. Right, of course. <laughs> um, no. Because, um, I mean, this is like something like I, that I genuinely struggle with because, like, I, uh, you know, I want to write more books about Japan, but don't always feel like I'm, that I'm the right person to tell that story. Oh, sure. And uh, this is something I'm very upfront about. And throughout the book, I want people to know who I am, what my perspective is, yeah. what I bring to the table, and what my, you know, prejudices that I brought to this book are, which is one of the reasons I think, um, okay, I'm going to spoil the end of the book a little bit for you. By the end of the book, I am kind of examining these ideas that I had back in 2006 when I first started drinking Baijiu and had this really kind of reaction to it that was really violently bad and I think totally out of proportion to how bad it is to right. like drink something you don't like all that much. Yeah. And look at the way that other people react to this who maybe come from a similar background to me and kind of trying to see what it is about our history and our culture. How has the experience of being an American in China contributed or made me more dismissive of certain elements of Chinese culture? So I think all I can do is explore things through my own perspective, but try to understand why I'm reacting the way that I'm reacting to certain things. And this is the second book I've written about Chinese drinking culture. Right. And it's the second book, I think, in English about Baijiu. Sure. Um, and I, I say right there in the first chapter, I'm trying to start a conversation, but I don't want to be the final word in this. I would love to see a book on this topic, either written in English or translated into English by a Chinese writer who yeah. is trying to grapple with Chinese drinking culture or a Chinese American author. I think the more perspectives brought to this subject, the better. The only thing that I wanted to acknowledge with this book is that this is a hugely important part of one of the biggest countries in the world, and we should be talking about this more than we are. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's like thinking back to the beginning of the book, like the experience you're describing, like on one level, it's uh, like a drink you didn't like, but on another level, it's sort of culture shock in a glass. Oh, absolutely. Right. But it's important to also remember, like it is in many sense, culture in a glass, not just the biochemical right. harvesting of microorganisms. Right. It is also something that I don't think people like your friend who said, like, oh, watch out for Baijiu. Right. When people do that, they are being very dismissive right. of something that is very important to a lot of people. Yeah. So it, it is important to teach it. Treat it with more respect. And I think as a fellow travel writer, I would also say that that is, for me, the most like rewarding part of traveling to a place when you encounter something that confuses you 
and you push through and try to figure it out. And maybe you do, maybe you don't, but you certainly learn more about that thing and probably even more about yourself. Yeah, no, for me, that thing was uh, red bean paste in Japan. And in lots of parts of Asia, red bean paste is an incredibly popular uh, ingredient used in desserts. And uh, the first time I tasted it, I'm like, why, you know, this, this is like refried beans. Like, why is this in, inside uh, what I thought was going to be a cake? And, uh, and, you know, I had that kind of dismissive reaction to it. And then I was like, wait a minute. All of these people that I know and uh, millions of people enjoy this because it tastes good. I want in on that. Like, how do I how do I get there? So that was kind of my 300 shots was, sure. you know, one time on a trip to Japan, I'm like, I'm going to eat something with red bean paste every day and see how this goes. And by the end of a couple of weeks, I'm like, OK, I kind of like this now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you learn by doing. Yeah. If someone wants to have their first Baijiu experience like I just did, what style do you recommend? Do you recommend having it in a cocktail? And where should they look for it? My general advice for people that have never tried Baijiu before is not to try one Baijiu for your first time. Take the effort, figure out the different styles of Baijiu, not all 12 of them, but at least two or three of them. Uh, Get different styles of Baijiu and taste them one after the other, because once you do that, you will start to realize this is not a monolith. These right. are different things. And maybe I like this one more than this one. And then you can start narrowing in on what it is that you like about this category. And if there is something you can find to like in this category. My favorite way to drink it is that described in many, many stories in this book of the little tiny shot glasses of it served at room temperature with a bunch of really um, rowdy people and a lot of uh, good good food, good conversation, just a nice collective experience. But most people outside of China are not used to drinking neat spirits with food at yeah, dinner time. Yeah, that's true. So cocktails might be one way to do it. And certainly we sell our product to a lot of bars and restaurants that put it in cocktails. And so that's maybe not the most... Uh, traditional way from a Chinese perspective. But on the other hand, baijiu is in Chinese culture never meant to be consumed alone, either by yourself or without food or other flavors that are complementing it. So in that sense, it is very much in keeping with baijiu's history to mix it with other flavors. Right. There are cocktail recipes throughout the book um, developed by some great bartenders. And as you point out, like baijiu is an assertive enough spirit that it is going to come through in any cocktail. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Unless you really try to bury it. But why would you use it if you weren't going to taste it? Of course. Mm -hmm. Well, Derek, thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thank you to Derek Sandhouse for visiting us in Seattle and to Matthew Amsterburton for leading the conversation. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of Drunk in China and any other books featured on Booklarder Podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code podcast at checkout. We have signed copies of Drunk in China and many of the featured books on the podcast, so be sure to get one of those while they last because they make wonderful holiday gifts. If you visit us in the shop, just mention that you heard about a book on the podcast for 10% off in-store as well. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and if you like what you heard here, leave us a rating and review to help others find us. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at booklarder. 
For more information about Book Larder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit booklarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, visit us in person at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Laura Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.